Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers Bible Study, we're in the book of Acts. We'll be starting chapter 11. Peter uh, defends his uh, ministry to the Gentiles. We'll learn about that. And as we like to do, we'll start with a word of prayer. Thanks, Lord, for us allowing us to come together again to study and ponder your word. And we thank you for Mark and his diligence as a teacher for us. And thank you for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening, Mark. Good evening. We've been going through the book of Acts, uh, noticing several things that should be in there that are not, and several things that are in there that no one apparently has noticed for some time. And for me, at least, it's been quite an interesting uh, examination. All right, so what we do find in the book of Acts is a plan that was announced way back in chapter 1, verse 8, by the resurrected Christ, where he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we are right on the cusp here of the transition from the first three phases of this plan to the fourth and last to the end of the earth, which in the first century Judean mindset, Rome was referred to as the end of the earth, interestingly enough. But uh, we're not quite there yet, but we are on the we're at the beginning of the end because the Judean people have been given uh, many, many opportunities to believe and repent of their murder of the long-awaited Messiah. And within the Judean culture, what we see are that there are many rings of acceptability. The high priest, of course, is at the pinnacle because he's the only one who's acceptable to go in to the empty throne room, the Holy of Holies, the innermost chamber of the temple there in Jerusalem. And then after him you have the the priests who are not the high priest, and then you have the Levites, and then you have uh, devout male Judeans, and then you have the, the Judeans that are kind of, in the outlying areas like Galilee that are a little bit lower class and looked down upon. And then you've got the huge class of Judeans who did not settle or did not remain in Palestine after the Babylonian captivity, but rather just went out into the Greek and later Roman world and settled in the major metropolitan areas. 
like uh, Saul of Tarsus, he grew up in the great city of uh, Tarsus in modern-day Turkey. And uh, Stephen, these were the Hellenized Judeans. In other words, they adopted Greek names, Greek culture, spoke the Greek language, and so on. So there's all these rings. And the, the, then there are proselytes who were not even direct descendants of Abraham, but who allowed themselves, if they were male, to be circumcised. And then you had, uh, at the very furthest outlying ring of, of what they considered uh, the Israelite nation, or the remnant of the Israelite nation, would have been the Samaritans. We, we didn't see any great uh, reaction when the Samaritans were uh, preached to amongst the uh, Judean Christian community. They rejoiced that, uh, and, and sent the apostles down there to lay their hands on them and so on. But now we're going to see that <clears throat> when you step outside the circumcised community, even amongst uh, Gentiles who are God-fearers that, that acknowledge Yahweh as the one true God of the whole world, that's a huge leap to go from the circumcised community that are recognized as remnants of Israel. You've gone beyond that into something else. So this is what we're getting into here in chapter 11 after the Holy Spirit has fallen on Cornelius during Peter's preaching to them. And let's just start off with the first three verses, please. All through Judea, the apostles and the brothers heard that Gentiles, too, had accepted the word of God. As a result, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, some among the circumcised took issue with him, saying, You entered the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Right, so we see here again the first three phases of the, of the plan that Jesus gave out you know, centered on Jerusalem and the Judeans, and then the Samaritans are kind of the third uh, part of that plan. And that wasn't a problem. But here, specifically, it talks about the circumcision party, and then he's accused of going into uncircumcised men. So you see, this is the huge leap. This is the huge dividing line. Those who are circumcised are in covenant with God, even if they are second rate, third rate, or even tenth rate, as in the case of the Samaritans, they're still within the covenant circle because circumcision was the sign of the blood covenant that existed between Israel and Yahweh. And this was something that could not be violated, even though it was over and over again uh, by by the Israelites. But it, it, it still formed a real dark line instead of just a fuzzy gray line, it was a very crisp line. Either you're circumcised or you're not. And circumcision itself was a great deterrent to these God-fearing Roman soldiers and and Greeks who lived in the area. You know, they, they could read the scriptures and study, and they could admire the temple and the temple service and all that, but... Um, Becoming circumcised, that was a major, major deal. And uh, it, it prevented a lot of these God-fearing Greeks from uh, becoming true proselytes into uh, the Judean nation. And so 
here these guys just couldn't get over it. What we're going to see throughout the book of Acts is that the the Judean Christians, they were, a lot of these were Galileans, a lot of these were Judean proper. The Hellenized Christians were gone after Stephen's arrest. They were the ones who had to flee for their lives. They were recognizable by their names, their language that they spoke, probably how they dressed, and so on and so on. But the the, this inner core of Judean Christians that stayed based in Jerusalem for decades more, they are going to be faithfully adhering to every aspect of the law of Moses and the temple worship right up until the end. And we'll see that this has great significance uh, later on in the book of Acts. Right now, they're specifically talking about circumcision and specifically about going in and sharing a meal with them. Even though the law of Moses did not specifically forbid an Israelite from going into a Gentile's home, the dietary restrictions were so uh, onerous that it would be virtually impossible to go in to a Gentile home and be able to eat anything or even drink the vessels that even water might have been served in might not have been up to the uh, the standards that the rabbis had uh, had set to comply with the law of Moses. So it was just viewed that any Judean who went into a Gentile home and actually had a meal there had defiled himself and become ceremonially unclean. So the, these are very serious accusations, at least to these uh, men who are bringing these up to Peter. Any any thoughts or comments? Well, Mark, you said that uh, that uh, that they were following the Mosaic law and they did all these things, but indeed did not that Mosaic law get extended and expanded, and what we now call Talmudism, uh, which which originally came out of Babylon, perhaps, uh, where. The original laws of Moses were expanded tens and hundreds of fold to this enormous number of practices that, that they taught in the temple at that time. Uh, am I correct? Well, yes, that's the Phariseeism was such uh, an outward uh, religion that they did add many, many customs and traditions to avoid even the possible appearance that the law of Moses had been violated. And, you know, this is still with us today in rabbinic Judaism. If you travel over there to uh, Israel or the occupied territories, you know, the, in, on the Sabbath day, Saturday, the elevators open at every floor because you're not allowed to touch an elevator button on the Sabbath. So we can see all of this. And, yes, a, a lot of this did originate during the Babylonian captivity. For 70 years, there were no... Israelites really living in the land of Palestine uh, to speak of. Uh, they had to gradually uh, come back, and so they did adopt that. And, and even worse things uh, cropped up. The uh, Kabbalism came up during this time, which is kind of a witchcraft and magic that's uh, blended in with uh, some kind of rabbinic Judaism. And in the Gospel of John, at one point, Jesus, towards the end, he says, in your law, he instead of calling it the law, he talks about your law. So he definitely acknowledges that the law had been been corrupted. 
Thank you. All right. Now, so Peter's had these serious charges laid before him, and uh, he's going to answer here, and uh, we'll just read all of this, verses 4 through 17, please. Peter then explained the whole affair to them step by step from the beginning. I was at prayer in the city of Joppa when, in a trance, I saw a vision. An object like a big canvas came down. It was lowered down to me from the sky by its four corners. As I stared at it, I could make out four-legged creatures of the earth, wild beasts and reptiles and birds of the sky. I listened as a voice said to me, Get up, Peter, slaughter, then eat. I replied, Not for a moment, sir. Nothing unclean or impure has ever entered my mouth. A second time the voice from the heavens spoke out. What God has purified, you are not to call unclean. This happened three times. Then the canvas with everything in it was drawn up again into the sky. Immediately after that, the three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea came to the house where we were staying. The Spirit instructed me to accompany them without hesitation. These six brothers came along with me and we entered the man's house. He informed us that he had seen an angel standing in his house and that the angel had said send someone to Joppa and fetch Simon known also as Peter in the light of what he will tell you you shall be saved in all your household as I began to address them the Holy Spirit came upon them just as it had upon us at the beginning then I remembered what the Lord had said John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If God was giving them the same Spirit he gave us when we first believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to interfere with him? All right, so we see uh, Peter's best defense here is just a straightforward narrative of what had occurred. And, of course, he had uh, plenty of witnesses with him, uh, which... uh, was probably not by accident and and was likely very, very helpful in this case. We get um, a little bit of variation here from the account that we had in Chapter 10. He gives a little more detail about this sheet that that drops down here as opposed to what we uh, heard about it in Chapter 10. Uh, Here we get uh, a fourth category of animal-listed wild beasts are added in, which were not mentioned back in chapter 10, and it parallels the uh, one of the verses back in Genesis, uh, chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, beasts and all cattle, creeping things, and flying birds, which is uh, also quoted in the 148th Psalm. And, of course, this would also call to mind the new creation which is the Gospel of John is relaying the work of Jesus Christ as a new creation by putting it in parallel to the creation account in Genesis. And so here we see a little bit of that as well, where this this idea of, of purifying the Gentiles so they can be brought into God's family 
is God's new creation, which is a more amazing thing even than the first creation, which, of course, everyone goes on and on and on about, and oohs and ahs, about how wonderful our world and universe is. But spiritually, being able to take people that are outside this covenant and to bring them in, that is an even more amazing work in God's mind than creating the universe in six days. And so this is very much a part of the new creation and very much the, the plan announced back in chapter 1, verse 8, where the apostles will be Christ's witnesses now to the ends of the earth. Um, this, this all, all of these images and symbols all kind of uh, come together here. The idea that Peter had to eat things that were unclean calls to the Judean mind, at least, the book of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel, who was in exile with most of the Judean people in Babylon, uh, in chapter 4, early on, he was told to eat unclean food. And this, in actuality, all through Ezekiel, as bad as the Judean people's plight was at that time, God was explaining through Ezekiel how he was going to work this, this great punishment of Judea to ultimately bring about this new spiritual Israel, as we, you, you know, we'll see uh, later. Uh, it, Ezekiel 37, the, the vision of the dry bones, we talked about that back uh, as a parallel to Acts 2, where God's Spirit is called from the four corners of the earth to come into these dead bones, which old covenant Israel was, uh, just a pile of dry, dead bones, and that spirit would come in and make those bones live. And Israel would be fully restored, not from the tiny remnant that existed here in the first century uh, of the Judean people, uh, representing a tiny remnant of what was originally the great nation of Israel, but both Ezekiel in, th in verse 37 a chapter is told that that the dead bones are the whole house of Israel. Peter on the day of Pentecost is preaching to the whole house of Israel. And now by bringing in the Gentiles, this is tied in with this restoration of Israel. We also have to look back to Deuteronomy 31 and 32, where the end of Israel is pronounced uh, with a great curse. Uh, it's kind of summed up in chapter 32, verse 21, they have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities. I will move them to jealousy with those who are not a people, and I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. So this verse is being fulfilled here because even the Judean Christians are provoked to jealousy by the, even the concept that, that this un, an uncircumcised people who are really not a people of God because they're not circumcised are going to be used to provoke the Judean people to anger. But this is, it's, it's happening exactly as God foretold. Everything is going exactly as God foretold. And again, we have to ask our our dispensational and Zionist friends, you know, where is the failure that is the 
foundation of their mythology, where is the utter failure of God's plan to set up his kingdom uh, in the days of Christ and the apostles? We see no reference in this book at all, but yet we see, we continue to see complete fulfillment in detail of all of the prophecies made to and about Israel in the Hebrew Scriptures. So the four corners, the beasts of creation, the the eating, uh, all of this ties all of this uh, back together and shows how that the purification of the Gentiles and them being grafted into Israel is God's greatest work of creation. Well, one more thing. The... The spirit entering into Cornelius, see, is so significant because it continues the fulfillment of the spirit being called from the four corners of the earth to enter into the dry bones from Ezekiel 37. And this is the imagery of God coming in to dwell somewhere. So we have similar visions when the tabernacle was dedicated at Mount Sinai. We have similar imagery and noise and lights and everything when Solomon's temple was dedicated. We interestingly have absolutely nothing like this that happened when they came back from Babylon and finally got a crude copy of the temple built. When they dedicated it, absolutely nothing happened. The throne chair of God was missing out of the throne room. The throne room was empty and stayed empty, waiting for the king to return to dwell there amongst his people. And, of course, instead of coming in the form like this, the Holy Spirit came instead into Jesus of Nazareth upon his immersion in the river Jordan. And so he was dedicated as the true temple, the the dwelling place of God the Father on earth, instead of the empty temple in Jerusalem. One scholar I just read this week has said that the the ripping of the veil at the time of the crucifixion, in addition to many other things that it may symbolize, it also would have revealed to the whole world that the throne room was empty. God was not in that temple anymore. He was moving, in fact, from the physical body of Jesus on the cross into the spiritual body of all believers, as we saw when we looked at the Gospel of John. And the day of Pentecost demonstrated this when the similar event occurs. The Spirit visibly descended upon and dwelt in the disciples on the day of Pentecost to show that this is now God's dwelling place on earth not the building that they were worshiping up on the Temple Mount. And now, this is the wonder of wonders. These uncircumcised heathens have now become the dwelling place of God. Peter and his companions saw the Spirit of God enter into these uncircumcised men, which really is the answer to the charges that were laid against him. This is absolutely amazing. The Judean leaders' uh, insistence on continuing to uh, you know, uh, glorify the temple on the Temple Mount is now idolatry because it's not the true dwelling place of God anymore. All right, now, I'll open it up. Any thoughts or comments here down through verse 17? So I've never heard that stated before uh, in just the way you did, that... Uh, 
God's greatest achievement was uh, rescuing the rest of the world from nothingness into the new covenant. Gordon Ginn pointed out that uh, when uh, Jesus died on the cross, the Holy of Holies curtain ripped in two and rent open. God wasn't there anymore. So that's awesome in itself, too. Oh, yeah, the imagery that's involved in all these things is way beyond the uh, the understanding of most Christians in America. We've been dining on uh, pablum and milk for generations, being spoon-fed by the clergy, you know, feel-good stuff that really has no spiritual substance to it. So when we get into these things, it's it's a little bit shocking to discover the depth of meaning in all of these symbols that repeat throughout the Bible. We have a God that does intervene on behalf of mankind. He is not silent. He is actively involved with us. And he, he didn't go away. He's not billions of light years away waiting to turn. He is active. He's in the spiritual realm that we cannot see with our physical eyes. But it's not like, God is far away. He he dwells in every believer, and he's 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 active in the affairs of men from the spiritual realm, using human agency and providence to accomplish His will perfectly. Now, as He always has, which again is not consistent with what our dispensational and Zionist friends teach and believe. Sadly, all right. Well, let's. Let's go ahead and read verse 18, which stands alone, because this is the crowd's response to what Peter has just laid on them. When they heard this, they stopped objecting, and instead began to glorify God in these words. If this be so, then God has granted life-living repentance even to the Gentiles. Yeah, now, my version says, when they heard this, they fell silent. Let me look here in the literal version. In other words, they stopped in their tracks. Exactly. You know, when Job when Job spoke up back before he was struck by God, the 29th chapter of Job gives us the picture of how a, a man complete in the sight of God in his spiritual life acted. When he went into where they were holding the town council, everyone fell silent. They were absolutely awed because Job reflected the counsel of God. Peter has just recounted the workings of God from the spiritual realm, and they, they, they have the same reaction. They're absolutely silent. Both literal translations that I have here, they says that these, the audience went silent and then began to glorify God. This was shocking news. Circumcision had been that the definite line in the sand that you could not cross. And God has just blown that line to smithereens. So it has totally turned upside down everything they've been taught their whole lives. And, and it, it's, it's quite a shock uh, to them to absorb here. So they will. Mark? Uh, yes. Would it be safe to assume that there were no Pharisees in the audience if they had such a positive reaction? Well, it would, but we, we see that from this same group of Judean Christians, in just a few chapters, we'll see that they start, uh, how do you call it, um, hedging 
on this. <laughs> um, back, oh, okay. uh, craw fishing, backing up. <laughs> and, and we don't know. If, yeah, we don't know if it's people that were here at this time, or maybe you know they can as they continue to convert Pharisees. You know, it may have been newer converts who who caused trouble, but we're going to see that this is going to be an issue all the way to the end of the Judean nation. This idea of do we bind the law of Moses on? the Gentiles, and, you know, they po- they can't possibly be pleasing in God's sight unless they are physically circumcised. So the, it's, the discussion is not over, but it's over for the moment. They have been absolutely floored by this great work that God has done, which, again, probably has more significance to God looking at it from the spiritual significance than it does to us trying to understand this thousands of years later without having been born into the Judean culture, you know, it's hard for us to really understand the shock that these people were feeling at this moment. So a Gentile was an uncircumcised, you know, male and any females in his family. So, you know, this is this is what they're saying. We can't believe it. God has granted life for the age to uncircumcised people. They can't believe it. They knew that the new age had begun, and they know that the new age had no end, and that the new age involved sharing the eternal nature of God. And the idea that an uncircumcised person could be part of that is just, you know, flooring. But there's, there's no other possible meaning to this vision of Peter, the sheet, and the unclean food, and so on. All right, let's go ahead and look at verses 19 through 21 here. Those in the community who had been dispersed by the persecution that arose because of Stephen went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, making the message known to none but Jews. However, some men from Cyprus and Cyrene among them who had come to Antioch began to talk even to the Greeks announcing the good news of the Lord Jesus to them. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of them believed and were converted to the Lord. Again, we already went into the detail that the the Christians who had been dispersed were Hellenistic Judeans. These were uh, people of the Judean nationality and religion, who went into and lived among the Greek culture throughout the Roman world. They had come back to Jerusalem for Pentecost, had believed on Jesus, and had stayed there, but then were scattered at the time of Stephen's arrest and and murder. So they went back, you know, to where they were from, hopefully, unless they would be persecuted there, like Barnabas did not end up uh, where he had been before. But they came from the dispersion, as it was called, the diaspora, and now they've gone back to the diaspora. They spread around, but they were focusing on other Hellenistic Judeans, those of their own kind. That's who they were preaching and teaching to. Barnabas, I think being from Cyprus, is probably uh, one of these mentioned in verse 20. Cyrene, I believe, is in the present-day country of Libya. When they came to Antioch, 
this is in present-day Syria, by the way, they also began teaching the uh, uncircumcised Greeks about Jesus Christ. And they got uh, almost an unexpected number of responses. A great number believed and turned to the Lord. Again, the, the hand of the Lord is specifically mentioned. You see, he's not far away, billions of light years away in some mystical place called heaven that's way outside the universe. He's right here living amongst the disciples, and he can reach out from the spiritual realm whenever he chooses, and he is working his new creation through these disciples, as it just tells us right here in verse 21. So God's new creation is working through these Hellenistic Judean Christians. Um, And again, the first audience would have likely been people like Cornelius, who had some knowledge of the Greek scriptures and the history of Israel. In the Roman world, the Hebrews, the Israelites, were, were viewed with some mystery and respect because of the antiquity. that they, they could trace their scriptures back much further than most other cultures of that time. And Josephus eventually wrote the antiquity of the Jews, which played up on this, and it was very well received in the Roman world. So those type of Gentiles would have probably been this first audience. The number of converts now has gone way beyond this one household in Caesarea. And so we'll see if there's any comments, and then we'll go into uh, verses 22 through 26 to see what happens as a result of this. News of this eventually reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, resulting in Barnabas' being sent to Antioch. On his arrival, he rejoiced to see the evidence of God's favor. He encouraged them all to remain firm in their commitment to the Lord, since he himself was a good man filled with the Holy Spirit and faith. Thereby, large numbers were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas went off to Tarsus to look for Saul. Once he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and instructed great numbers. It was in Antioch that the disciples were called Christians for the first time. All right. Well, obviously what I just said about Barnabas is completely wrong. Um, he wasn't there, but he now he goes there because he was down in Jerusalem and he heard about uh, what was going on up there. He was uh, very excited. It says he encouraged them. That's what his name meant, son of encouragement. And uh, again, the Spirit of God is dwelling in him, and he had great confidence in the power of God. And so he, he understood this to be the work of God and got very excited about it. He knew exactly what he wanted to do, and he set out for Tarsus, which would have been a good ways up to the north of Antioch in Syria, up to uh, Tarsus in southeastern Turkey, to look for Saul. Saul probably had gotten himself in hot water with his family at home. <laughs> he might have been uh, disinherited and other things for his heretical beliefs, but uh, Barnabas was still able to find him and brought him back down to Antioch. And they spent a whole year there working and and teaching a great multitude. And then this closes with this great 
little statement that it was in Antioch that the disciples first came to be known as Christians. Up, up until this time, I mean, the believers were just a sect of the Judeans. The Romans viewed them that way. The Judeans viewed them that way. They were just one of a number of these various sects that uh, had to be different from the ruling order in Jerusalem. But here, when we get this large number of Gentiles, we see that this new name that had been prophesied by the Hebrew prophets is used to apply. And it's the name of Christ. And this, of course, represents this new creation that was in God's mind from the beginning of the earth uh, or before the foundations of the universe to create a perfect bride for his son. They wear his name just as a bride traditionally takes the name of her husband. The bride, which is now fully represented by this mixture of Judeans and Gentiles, the early part of the church, when it was all Judeans, didn't represent the full plan that Christ had mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 8. But now, it's all there. All the elements are there. And so the bride is becoming complete, and they now are known by the name of Christ as Christians. So, again, it all kind of ties, ties together there. May I make a comment? Oh, sure. Well, it might be sort of a, a takeoff on the fact that people were known for their location for where they were from, like Judeans, Ephesians, Philippians. And those in Christ, that was a location. <laughs> they were Christians. Their hope was anchored in Christ. That was their hope. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Located in a spiritual kingdom. Yeah, a spiritual kingdom. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Which which we see pictured throughout the Bible in many ways, but including that is the whole land of Palestine or the promised land, the whole city of Jerusalem or Mount Zion and the mount that it sits on. In other words, this, this idea of the spiritual kingdom of God is pictured with physical real estate, sometimes as a whole land, sometimes as a whole city district, sometimes just as a mountain, and sometimes just as the temple that is built on top of the mountain. But they're all images of this exact thing that uh, was just described very well. Thank you. All right, well, let's read the last four verses then, and that will be a good uh, stopping point. At about that time, certain prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, was inspired to stand up and proclaim that there was going to be a severe famine all over the world. It did, in fact, occur while Claudius was emperor. This made the disciples determine to set something aside, each according to his means, and send it to the relief of the brothers who lived in Judea. They did this, dispatching it to the presbyters in the care of Barnabas and Saul. All right, before we go into uh, chapter 12 next time, we'll talk a little bit about this because there's a prophecy I want to look up that is being specifically fulfilled here. The idea of Gentiles giving money to circumcised Judeans, that's a novel idea. 
and it, it's showing a repeat of uh, the exodus out of Egypt when uh, God's people were leaving their known world. They despoiled the Egyptians. Uh, uh, but anyway, we'll, we'll look at that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Famines were, of course, common because they didn't have uh, refrigerated food storage. And so if you had a year of, of no rainfall in upriver from the Nile Valley, Egypt couldn't make food, and Egypt fed the whole Roman world, basically, and it still feeds all of Europe today, <laughs> interestingly enough. People starved, so these famines came cyclically along with the weather, and this one here is causing this to happen, but it, it's going to fulfill a spiritual purpose, which we'll hopefully look at next time. Great. Well, thank you. That was a very insightful study, Mark, and we'll look forward to continuing on in Chapter 12. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.